All right, let's take our hymn books. I mean, our hymn books. Actually, that was, I'm still messed up from last week when we were turning in scripture to hymn books from Ken. So I'm going to blame, I'm going to blame him for that. (laughs) Thank you, Ken. All right, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, as we continue our, our study through the book of Mark. And we're, we're really reaching what we would call the, really the, one of the peaks of the book here this morning. We've been leading to this moment, and so it's, it's an exciting moment this morning. Our text for this morning will be verses 27 to 30. Verses 27 to 30. Mark writes under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi on the way. He questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. But others say, one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we tackle our text this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you that you once again have given us your word that we might know you. We know that in creation, we can know of your existence. We see some of your glory, but we wouldn't know who you were. We wouldn't know enough to save us. And so we thank you that you've given us your word to reveal to us who you are, that we might have salvation, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. And so this morning, I pray that you will be with your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit will take it and that you will use it in the hearts of your church to the glory of your grace here this morning in your name. Amen. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? A very, very, very simple question, isn't it? This is not a statement that has a lot of big words. This is not a word, a statement where you have to look up the words in the sentence and say, I'm not sure what they mean. This is not a statement that has words that have such deep meaning that, and deep theological meanings that somehow you're just totally lost. A child can actually understand that question. Who do you say that I am? But when this question is asked about Jesus, the simplicity of that statement should not confuse us to the depth and the profundity of the answer to that question. This question has massive implications. If you answer this question right, it's heaven. If you answer this question wrong, it's hell. Answer this question right, it's eternal life. 
answer it wrong, it's eternal death. Answer it right, it's eternal bliss. Answer it wrong, it's eternal punishment. Answer it right, it's life with God forever, enjoying Him forever in heaven. Answer it wrong, and it is separation from God, and the wrath of God poured out on you for eternity. Who do you say that I am? A profound question, a simple question, with massive implications. Now we've been talking in the book of Mark and we've gone over this the last few weeks that the purpose of Mark is to, to actually answer this question. Mark has started at the very beginning of the book and said this is the gospel of the Son of God. And he says, I want you to understand who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. And now he goes through this book and everything in this book is exactly going to that point. He starts out with Jesus, and Jesus is seen as being forerun by John the Baptist, another prophetic text that John the Baptist now is fulfilling, that he is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament said this was going to happen. The Messiah would come, there would be a forerunner. And John the Baptist is announcing there is one that is coming. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the forgiveness of sin. One whose sandal I am not worthy to unlatch. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus goes into the water and comes out, Another prophecy is fulfilled because it said that the Messiah would come, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit descends on Christ like a dove. And the Father announces from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And there is another fulfillment of prophecy. And there is God speaking that this is his Son. And then Jesus starts to demonstrate the power that he's been anointed as the Messiah by the Father and he demonstrates his power as he goes forth and he first of all overcomes temptation and sin. Satan comes to him, but Jesus Christ overcomes. And then he begins to start doing all of these miracles. He starts to show his power as he casts out demons, as he starts to heal he wipes out leprosy. He wipes out those with limbs that do not work. He begins to raise the dead. He shows creative power as he feeds the multitudes. Things that only God can do. He walks on water. God is the one who walks on water. He's the one who walks on deep in the deep. Yet in spite of all of this evidence, in spite of all of this demonstration of his power instead of people accepting him the more light he gives them the more they reject him the more he demonstrates his div divinity and who he is and makes claims as to who he is 
The more the, pe- the people who should know who he is the most start to reject him. And Jesus came as a Jewish Messiah to the Jewish nation of Israel. He came onto his own and his own received him not. They saw him and they rejected that truth. But in the midst of all of that, there's this inner circle that Christ starts to draw towards himself. He has his 12, 12 apostles and maybe some other disciples who are following him. And he has given them ears to hear. And he has given them the privilege of not only seeing all of his works, but they are also giving information as he explains his parables to them. But in spite of being given the privileges, in spite of the extra teaching, the disciples have demonstrated that they are quite spiritually dull. They're not too clever. They are so caught up in earthly things that oftentimes they miss the spiritual point that Christ is making. And we saw that earlier in the chapter as he warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees and they're arguing about bread instead of realizing he's talking about teaching and Christ is interested in the spiritual realm. Well, last week we saw that even after that, that Jesus heals the blind man. And he, demonst- he does this miracle in two stages. And he is demonstrating to them that spiritual light is found in him and him alone. And that spiritual light must be granted by him. And that spiritual light, even for the believer, does not necessarily, we don't learn everything about Christ right away. We have, it is learned. And the disciples here have had all this teaching and all this opportunity. And Christ has said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not understand who I am? Now we remember this. Christ is about six months from the cross. He's been with these men for two and a half years. He has taught them. They have ate together, slept together. They have gone around the country together. And now it's exam time. Now it's exam time. It's time to test his disciples. Do they understand who he is? Do they understand who he is? We're out of time. Christ will be dead and in the grave in six months. If the disciples get this right, then Christ's ministry has been a success. If they get it wrong, it's too late to start again. Christ has chosen these men because they are to be the ones who are going to what? Continue the ministry after he is gone. We looked at that. They will be the ones who are going to proclaim his death and resurrection after he is gone. They are going to be instruments that he uses to build the church. If they don't get it, the church is not going to be built. If they don't get it, who's going to be left to testify to who Christ was? Because does it matter if Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and rose again and paid the price for sin for all who would believe and nobody knows about it? What good would it do? And so we stand here at a crossroads. We stand here at a place 
that if this is answered wrong, not only is Christ's ministry been in vain, but the disciples' eternity is, in, is now in jeopardy because they have not understood who Jesus is. And this morning, our, our text is really dealing exactly with that question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Christ gives them a two-part test here. Two questions. Really, the first one's a warm-up, maybe a bonus question. But question number two is the important question. They need to get it right. And so this morning, we'll see him asking a probing question. We'll see him asking a personal question. And then really, we'll just see the postscript in verse 30. So let's go to our text this morning as he starts in verse 27, the probing question. And so for us this morning, we should be asking the question, who do you th say Jesus is? And this morning, we should go out and encourage as a believer, as we can say, he is our Savior. And hopefully this morning, if you've never seen him as Savior, you will see him for who he is this morning. And you can answer this question correctly. Verse 27. Jesus went out with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi on the way. He questioned his disciples saying, who do the people say that I am? Now I want you to notice it says Jesus went out. Mark is making a very clear point here. The story, the narrative that we are about to hear is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus singular went out. Now the disciples went with him. They're going to fill in the story. But Mark wants to immediately put your attention on Jesus Christ. And it says he went out and the idea is he went out with purpose. He wasn't just wandering. Christ was taking his disciples to Caesarea Philippi for a purpose. Now he says he went to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a city that was about 25 miles north of Bethsaida. So it would be a full day's journey north into Gentile territory. Caesarea Philippi was a, was a city that had been built or restored or built up by Herod Philippi. It was a city that was known for several things. In Jewish history, it was the last city really taken over by Antiochus IV as he captured Palestine and brought it, took it from Egypt control and therefore became under the Saluds and under the Romans. And therefore, there started the war with the Maccabeans. And so it was kind of that symbol of Jewish defeat, of Jewish uprising and defeat. It was a town that was known for its paganism. It had a god named Pan, a, man, a god that was half man, half goat. He was a guardian of agriculture and of the poor. And he was worshipped in a cave just out at the, mount of, at the base of Mount Hermon. 
So there was this paganism that was known from this city, a paganism that was hostile to Judaism, a paganism that would be hostile to Jesus Christ. But it was also known as a city with a, a temple built by Herod. It was a great marvelous building that was made for emperor worship. It was built for, to worship the emperor. It was built in the honor of, of Caesar. And every year the citizens were meant to go, were required to go to the temple, take some incense, burn it, and say, Caesar is Lord. And so Jesus is taking his disciples and he is going to ask about his identification and he is going to take them into the deepest pagan place that he can take them. He is going to take them to a place where the people will say, Caesar is Lord. And he is deliberately taking him to this place as he asks them this question. And so he asks them, first of all, who do the people say that I am? Now notice, he does not say, who do the Jewish leaders say that I am? He doesn't ask, who do, who do they say that I am? He asks them, who does the people say that I am? Because the Jewish leaders were pretty clear who they thought Jesus was. Do we remember back in Mark 3.32? The scribes, the men, the great teachers of the law said, He hath Beelzebub, and the prince of devils cast us out by devils. In other words, Jesus is working in league with Satan. He casts out devils because he's working with the devil. That's who we think he is. The Scribes thought he was working with Satan. The Pharisees, the other religious leader, says he hath a devil and is mad. Why hear him? John chapter 10. They had come to the conclusion who Jesus was, but Jesus wasn't interested in that. He asked them, who do the people say that I am? Jesus is, is asking who do the people on the street say that I am? Who do the people say when they get together in the market, when they get together with their friends, when they have conversations in private, who are the people saying that I am? Now, Jesus is not asking because he doesn't know. He's not asking them to tell them something he doesn't know. Jesus is asking them this question because he wants to probe their thinking. He wants them to get their thinking on this subject. He wants them to start to go through the process of considering who he is. And Jesus is the master teacher. And so he starts with a question that first of all would put them at ease because it's easy to tell somebody else's opinion. You don't, there's no skin off your nose. And he gets them thinking about the subject that he has brought them out to this place to answer and to think about. And so he says, who do the people say that I am? Well, they answer him. They told him saying, and so I don't know if this is different disciples piping up, if this is one disciple speaking, but they said, listen, 
This is what they're saying. Some say you are what? John the Baptist. Some say you are John the Baptist. Now this was popularized and we remember what happened back in Mark chapter 6. When Jesus had sent out the 12 and they were doing miracles, the news got back to Herod. Now remember Herod is the one who put John the Baptist to death. He had his head cut off because he was too afraid of his guests to say no. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well-known, speaking of Christ, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And so the idea is this. John the Baptist was killed, and now he's coming back and he's coming back to haunt you, coming back to haunt Herod, and he is doing all of these miracles and powers to get back at you. And so the people thought, hey, this probably is John the Baptist, because he is doing a lot of the, he's saying a lot of the same things that John the Baptist said. John the Baptist said, repent. Jesus said, repent. There was this parallel. Now he's coming back in power. We think he's been reincarnated. This is the only thing to explain what Jesus is doing. He just must be a reincarnated John the Baptist. Then they said, others say, Elijah. Elijah. Now, why would they say that he's Elijah? What is it about Jesus that would make them call him Elijah? Well, Elijah was a popular figure among the Jews. If we remember that, G that Elijah in, in 2 Kings chapter 2.11 was taken up to heaven without dying. We have no record of his death. Remember, he was out with Elisha. Elisha said, I want, double the, I want double of the power or the blessing that you have. And Elijah said, if you see me when I go, you will have it. And so the chariot of fires appears. Elijah is taken up in the chariot. No, it says the whirlwind, right? He was taken up in the whirlwind to heaven. And so... They believed that since Elijah was not dead, that he was a caretaker and that he would oversee the deeds of mortals to comfort and the faithful and help the needy. But not just that he was helping the mortals and that he was helping the needy, but that he was to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Malachi tells us that behold I am sending you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse and so there was this there was this understanding that Elijah would come before the Messiah that he would announce the way of the Messiah and that he would be present before Christ came, the Messiah. 
And so they thought, this is it. Remember, there's messianic fervor. They're, they're hoping the Messiah is coming. They want, they're crying for deliverance. They're tired of being under the Gentiles. And Christ comes. And they say, this must be it. This must be the guy who's preparing the way. Because after all, maybe this is the Elijah that is to come that will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so they think, he's coming. This is it. Everything that we were promised is going to take place. Others say he's one of the prophets. In other words, he has got all of the qualifications. He's got all of the demonstrations of a prophet of God. He speaks with authority. He does powerful things that can only be explained by God. He must be just one in a long line of prophets. That's what he is. He's just a prophet. Matthew records that they also said that he was Jeremiah. Some of the people thought he was Jeremiah. Now, that's probably not the first prophet that we would think of, would we? The weeping prophet, Jeremiah, Jesus, he's not weeping. Why would they say that? Well, there was this bizarre tradition that Jeremiah, in anticipation of the Babylonian captivity, realizing what was coming, went to the temple and took the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, took them away and put them somewhere in Mount Nebo. And according to tradition, before the Messiah returned, Jeremiah would return and he would get, go get the altar of incense. He would go get the Ark and he would, the recovered Ark, and then the Messiah would come. And so the idea was that Jeremiah was going to go get this incense and the Ark of the Covenant and he was going to bring it back and then the Messiah would come. And so they thought, maybe this is him. Maybe this is the one. He's demonstrated all these powers. We can't explain it. He's come with authority. Maybe he's Jeremiah. And maybe he's the one who will go get the incense. Maybe he's the one who will get the Ark of the Covenant and the Messiah will come. Now, for the average person, being placed beside the great prophets of Israel would be kind of flattering, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't you like your name alongside David and Moses and Abraham, Elijah, Elisha? But each one of these comparisons falls short of who Jesus Christ is. Now, you might wonder, how on earth could the Jews miss this? How on earth could they miss that Jesus was the Messiah? Remember, we talked last week about what's in your mind often decides what you hear. What's in your mind often decides what you see. Well, the, the Jews had great messianic expectations, they understood that the Messiah was coming. And they had read their Old Testament. They had read what was written in Scripture. And they read things like this. My servant David will be king over them. And they will have one shepherd. And they will walk in ordinances and keep my statues and observe them. They will live in the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which my fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' 
forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And so the Jews were thinking, if when the Messiah comes, he's going to be a king. He is going to be a political figure who is going to come and deliver us. And he is going to be a royal he's going to be royalty and he will take over Israel and he will be the king and he will sit on the Davidic throne and he will be the one who will deliver us from the Gentiles and we will be placed in the land and we will have prosperity and the nations will no longer oppress us. And then Jesus comes, the Messiah comes, and he's none of that. He's none of that. He's not a king. He's not royalty. Fact is, we're questioning his origins, right? We, Mom and dad weren't married, right? When Mary was pregnant. Born in a stable. He's not a king. He's some, some teacher who's going against the establishment of Israel against the leadership of Israel who's a rabble rouser certainly this cannot be the Messiah maybe, maybe he's a, a prophet from God but he certainly can't be the Messiah because he doesn't tick the boxes that we think he should tick well the Jews had forgotten to read Isaiah 53 that this, the Messiah would come first and what? suffer that he would lay his life down for many the iniquities of us all would be placed upon him. They just simply ignored what Scripture told about the Messiah. They wanted, they wanted the kingdom. They wanted the earthly kingdom. They wanted comfort. They wanted food. They wanted peace and safety. But they did not want this Messiah. They did not want forgiveness of sin. They didn't think they even really needed it. After all, they were God's chosen people. And so when Christ came, they simply missed it. And so they gave opinions of Jesus Christ. They gave opinions about Jesus Christ. And they all fell short. And you know, today we have no shortage of opinions of who Jesus Christ is. People will, all over the world will tell you who he is. The Muslims say Jesus was a prophet. But he was not crucified on a cross. He will return, but he's not God. They revere him, as a, revere, revere him as a prophet. But he's not God. Hindus believe that Jesus is just one of millions of God. He's just, one, he's just one of, right? He's not the only God. He's not God of the Bible. The Jews believe Jesus was a great prophet and teacher, but he's not God. Today, still today, they do not see him as Savior Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was the once the archangel Michael. They've got an opinion of him before he came to earth. In this view, Jesus is not God in the flesh. Mormons believe that he was the first baby of God born in heaven. 
in a physical body after God had sexual intercourse with Mary, his own daughter. He's, he is the spirit brother of Lucifer. They've got an opinion of who Jesus Christ is. The atheist denies Jesus ever existed at all. The agnostic just doesn't know what to believe. Society believes that Jesus was a great teacher. They had some good ideas about loving your fellow man and being good to others. But they do not believe that he is the Savior or that he is God in the flesh. Most people acknowledge his existence, but they refuse to bow to his authority and to give him the worship he deserves. All of these opinions fall short of Jesus Christ. And if you hold any of these opinions of Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. They all fall short of who he is. They all are a, are a dis gross understatement as to who Jesus Christ is. Remember when Jesus was baptized? God the Father said, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 11. When he was transfigured, the Father again said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father says that he is what his son. If he is God's son, that makes him God. He is deity himself. What did Jesus claim about himself? Who did he say he was? What did he say? Before Abraham, what? I am. I and the Father are one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh to the Father, what? But by me. Any opinion of Jesus Christ that does not make him God, that does not recognize him for who he is and recognize him as the only way is opinion that is too low for Jesus Christ and is an opinion that leads to eternal destruction, leads to hell, damnation, and the wrath of God forever. Don't, don't take in a popular opinion of Jesus Christ because other people tell you who they think he is. Understand who Jesus Christ is. He is the Lord God Almighty. Buddha never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be Jehovah. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I am a teacher in search of the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I have never claimed to be holy. Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. Jesus said, unless you believed in me, you will die in your sins recognize Christ for who he is fundamentally our Lord's message was himself he did not come merely to preach the gospel he himself is that gospel he did not come merely to give bread he said I am the bread 
He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to name the shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is who Jesus Christ is. Well, Jesus, after hearing these opinions, now gets down to brass tacks. Here's the final exam. Here is, here's the question with all of the weight. Here's the question that must be answered. Christ's ministry hangs in the balance. The future of the church hangs in balance. The eternal life of the disciples ultimately will hang on this question. And he continued, we see the personal question, and he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The idea here is, who have you been saying that I am? In other words, who, who, who have you been saying in your heart? Who have you been saying together in your conversations together? Who do you say that I am? In contrast to the, to the crowd, he says, who do you say that I am? He wants a direct answer. He demands an answer to his questioning, a question of his identity. And so it's time to see, have the, have the disciples been influenced by the leaven of the Pharisees? Are they still spiritually dull? Are, are they still unable to see the truth? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Peter, speaking on, as a leader of the disciples, speaks for them and says, you are the Christ. He gets it right. He gets it right. He passes the final exam. This is, this is where we have been building for this whole book. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one that was sent by God. He is the Savior that was promised. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God's deliverance from sin. He is the one that has been sent by God. Matthew tells us that Jesus says to him, Indeed, he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now remember last week we talked about spiritual light had to be given to you. And Jesus says, Listen, Peter, even this revelation that you are having here, the glimpses that you've seen before, these are given to you by God. And no one can declare that Jesus is, is the Messiah. No one can declare him as Lord outside of God revealing it to them. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No man can confess Jesus as Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. 
It is a divine work of God. It is a divine moment that reveals that truly, as Matthew says, truly you are what? The Son of God. This is who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, the full confession of who He is. And it is revealed by Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. And so here we see that the answer to who am I is that you are the Christ, the Son of God. But the important thing is, is that this is not just a mental assent to some facts. Anybody can say, I, I believe that. But the reality is, is that your eyes must be opened by God to see this to be true and embrace it with all of your heart. He is the one who must open this for you so that you might see him. And then you will say, Jesus is the Christ. Then you will see him for who he is. Then you will understand that there is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved, but through Jesus Christ. He is the one he is the one that God sent. He is God's son. He is God in human flesh who came to pay the price on Calvary for sin. He died facing God's wrath that those who believe might be redeemed, might have their sins forgiven, they might be restored to God and that they might know him. And Jesus didn't just die, but he rose again. He conquered sin and death and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's coming again, the victorious Jesus Christ. Who do you say I am, that I am? And this morning, the question is not just who do you say that I am? And the answer, you are the Christ. But is he your Savior? Is he the one that you call Savior? Is he the one that you are resting in? Is he the one that you are counting on for salvation? Are you counting on something you have done? Or do you look at God's promise of salvation to all who would believe because of the finished work of Jesus Christ? So is he your Savior? Recognize Christ for who he was. And then in the story, as the narrative ends, Jesus does what he almost always does. And he warned them not to tell, to tell no one about him in this postscript. He basically says, don't tell anybody. Now, can you imagine? We are at the height here. This, the, exam, the, the disciples have passed the final exam. They have, they have given the right answer. They have given a moment of insight and Jesus says, oh, by the way, don't tell anybody the exam answer. Don't tell anybody who I am. Keep it quiet. This doesn't seem right, does it? Why would he do that? Well, I think there's several reasons. Christ is six months away from the, from the cross. Word gets out that he truly is believed to be the Messiah, and he's claiming to make these claims. 
very well that the crowds could undermine his ministry, try to make him king. But I think the primary reason is this, and, and I think we'll see this next week. They understand that Jesus is the Messiah. They understand that. But under, just like their Jewish brethren, they're still thinking that Jesus is the king and he's going to set up his kingdom in Israel right now. He's going to set it up. This is it. We're going to get deliverance. We're, remember how they like to argue? Then they'll still argue about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, right? After all, I, hey, mom, go ask him who can be on your right and who can be on your left, right? Kind of embarrassing for big fishermen, don't you think? But here, here, here they are. They're still thinking this. And Jesus is about, next, in the next few verses, to reveal that though they understand who he is, they don't understand his plan. They don't know and understand how it's all going to come about. And quite frankly, at this point, not knowing enough, they're unprepared to actually go and proclaim who he is as Messiah. They go out now, they're probably going to proclaim that he has come to be king over Israel, and that he's going to set up his throne. And Jesus is just going to tell them in the next few verses, oh, wait a minute. The plan's a little different than you think. And so Jesus is really protecting the disciples and saying, hey, wait. There's going to be a time when you understand the whole plan, but it's not now. So you're actually unqualified to go out and declare me as Messiah because you don't fully understand who it is. And we'll take a look at that next week. And so he says, keep it under wraps. But for you and me, we're on the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of Acts. We're on the other side of all of the Gospels, all of the epistles. And Jesus, when he rose again in Matthew 28, said what? What? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Making disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, right? Baptizing them. The Great Commission has been given. And for us, we don't have to say, oh, I can't tell anybody. I got, I got to wait. We're on the other side. And we need to proclaim who Jesus is. We need to be the ones who go out and say, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who died on the cross. Jesus is the one who paid the price for sin. Jesus is Lord. He demands obedience. And we are the ones who are to go and proclaim, teaching them the word of God so that they might know Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to wait. Disciples are on hold here for a little bit, but we're not. And so we need to go forth and we need to proclaim and we need to bring people here and we need to say, who do you say that Jesus is? We can just change that one word and it becomes ours. Who do you say Jesus is? And then guess what? We can say, actually, this is who he is. We know who he is. You need to answer it correctly and we're going to give you the correct answer. That they too might know him, that they too might have eternal life, that they too might be restored to their creator. We are the ones who are now to ask the question, who do you say that Jesus is? And guess what? We have the answer. We declare to them who Jesus is. We don't take their answers. We give them Peter's answer. 
Jesus is the Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the glimpse of the glories of Jesus Christ. We thank you again. We see just the wisdom of Christ as he works with his disciples. The master teacher. We thank you that he is the one that even in this moment is, is revealing the truth of who he is to his disciples. What a glorious Savior who continues to work and to give light even to, to those who are spiritually dull. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. May we see him for who he is, that he is the Christ, that he is God, that he, is, that he came in human flesh, that he died on the cross, rose again, paid the price for sin, that we might be restored to you, that he rose from the dead, he triumphed over sin and death, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back, and we will spend eternity with him. Oh, Lord, give us a glimpse of Jesus. If, if we have never seen him before, Lord, open our eyes, open the eyes that they might see him, that they might see him for the first time, see the glories of Jesus Christ, that they might worship him, that they might love him, that they might glorify him through a life lived in obedience to him. May you be glorified in the saving of souls. Heavenly Father, help us to love Jesus. Help us to understand who he is. Show us more. Show us more of his glory that we might enjoy him more, that we might worship him more, and that you might be glorified more. In your name, amen.